This week on the Backtable Podcast. And in renal cell, seems to be one of these tumors that really does well with low fractionation schedules. So for example, for us, for oligometastatic disease, we tend to use a single fraction of high-dose radiation. And uh, in our own practice also with primary kidney cancer, it tends to be one or three fractions. And then I think the bigger tumors, we have to be a little bit more gentle because these bigger tumors are often near other organs at risk that might be uh, contributing to complication rates. So that's when we type fractionated out to maybe five or so. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is brought to you by Vericite, provider of the Decipher Prostate Genomic Classifier. Decipher Prostate is a test for patients with localized prostate cancer that can help personalize treatment. Every patient and their prostate cancer is unique, and Decipher Prostate can provide meaningful insight into the aggressiveness of each individual's patient's tumor. Because the Decipher score is derived solely from the genomic characteristics of the tumor, it provides information not available through already known clinical and pathologic factors. Decipher high-risk patients generally benefit from earlier or intensified treatment, while Decipher low-risk patients may be ideal candidates for monitoring or less overall treatment. Decipher prostate is the most validated gene expression test in localized prostate cancer, with level 1 evidence in national clinical practice guidelines and more than 70 peer-reviewed publications, including more than 65,000 patients. Visit verisite.com decipher to learn more. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have Shankar Siva, who's an associate professor at Peter McCallum Cancer Center, and we have Raina McKay, who is an associate professor here at UC San Diego. Raina, Shankar, how are you guys doing today? Great. Thanks so much for having us. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. I got a little bit nervous at just what time it might be in Australia. And then I got even more nervous when I checked my WhatsApp to Shankar and it said at the movies. I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? But we knocked out some technical issues and here we are. So today we're going to talk about the role of radiation for kidney cancer, which certainly over the course of my training and my career has grown substantially. And um, I was thinking we could think about disease states, patient factors, disease specific factors to kind of see what's out there and when this might be appropriate. But, you know, maybe first and foremost, you know, you always heard about kidney cancer being radio resistant. Why was that out there? What does that mean? And, and how come there's so much renewed interest in radiation these days? I think the idea about radio resistance for kidney cancer was long held because we had conventional radiotherapy that really doesn't work awfully well in kidney cancer. This is actually borne out in trials back in the 80s where there were trials conducted looking at post-operative radiation with really broad techniques, very basic techniques, and causing a lot of side effects with those approaches. So it fell by the wayside. And certainly, even some of the preclinical studies have shown that low doses of radiation don't really help all that much in kidney cancer. So the turning point has really been the advent of technology, things like SBRT or SABRE, they're the same thing, radiosurgery, they're all the same term. Use of high-dose perfraction radiation delivered very accurately. And we've seen that since the time of this advent and this new technology that control rates with kidney cancer are much, much better. 
I would echo that. I feel like I, I drilled Shankar one time when I was giving a talk at the SUO on the role of radiation therapy in, in renal cell cancer. And I was like, where did this whole concept of radio resistance come from? And I know that it, there's a whole pool of, of data to support all those historic studies. But I think what stood out in my mind was this one preclinical study, and Shankar, you're probably familiar with it, where they basically had almost every single cell line of a possible tumor and then normal tissue. There was over like, you know, thousands of cell line data, if you will, and kind of uh, normal tissue. And they basically radiated those tumors with two to six gray of sort of standard radiation therapy and looked at cell death, just like very crude, you know, basic science experiment. And then what was on like the least amount of cell death of this entire list of thousands of tumors and normal sample, kidney cancer. I feel like it's gotten this like terrible reputation with just how conventional imaging or conventional radiation was delivered with low dose over multiple fractions as opposed to higher dose and just kind of taking us back to old school radiation oncology. Once you're able to increase the amount of gray per fraction, you can really kind of amplify your tumor killing. And I'm not a radiation oncologist. I totally defer to Shankar, but I think that that's kind of my takeaway. Well, I think it is nice to revisit some of these things. One of my areas of uh, clinical research focus is testicular cancer and teratomas have also always been historically termed radio resistant. And there may be some additional complexities with chemo and radiation, but we've had a patient or two that I've shared with Neil Desai where multiple lung metastases resected and finally the patient was kind of done with it. So we offered him Sabre to a couple of metastatic sites. And at least at the time that we wrote that manuscript two or three years out, he was disease free. So Without totally going into like biophysics land, my understanding is that there are some fairly fundamental differences in cell kill when we're talking about conventionally fractionated radiotherapy versus SBRT or ultra hypofractionated radiotherapy. Shaker, can you give us like the, the maybe elevator speech on the differences between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So conventional radiotherapy or low-dose perfraction radiation relies on mitotic catastrophe. So in other words, you radiate the DNA in, within the cell the cell tries to divide, recognizes it damage, and then undergoes senescence or, or death. High-dose perfraction radiation, so Sabre types of fractionations, engage other pathways of cell kill, things like the caspase pathway, apoptosis, and immunogenic type cell pathways as well. And these have additional cell kill, not only to the tumor, but some of the endothelial components of vasculature that actually leads to the tumor as well. So these high doses per fraction have a fundamentally different kind of mechanism than conventional fractionation. Okay. Okay. So, and typically I'm sure there's some kind of site-specific considerations, patient-specific consideration is in a piece of high dollar real estate. But what are we talking here? Three, four, five sessions, a single session, generally over a couple of days, a couple of weeks. What's the kind of broad range that we're, we're looking at here? So the definition in the US actually is tied often to a billing constraint, which is up to five <laughs> fractions. And so I think my understanding of the US practice tends to be a lot of five fraction schedules that are delivered. For us, and there have been some studies, for example, a group from Memorial Sloan have done a, a randomized trial looking at single fraction versus three fraction radiotherapy. And in renal cell, it seems to be one of these tumors that really does well with low fractionation schedules. So for example, for us, for oligometastatic disease, we tend to use a single fraction of high-dose radiation. And uh, in our own practice also with primary kidney cancer, it tends to be one or three fractions. And then I think the bigger tumors, we have to be a little bit more gentle because these bigger tumors are often near other organs at risk that might be uh, contributing to complication rates. 
So that's when we start fractionating out to maybe five or so. Okay, that's helpful. And yeah, when I see my patients that are consulting for prostate cancer and I'm trying to explain hypofractionated versus conventionally, I'm, I kind of talk about the friendly fire phenomenon. And when you get to these stronger guns, bigger bullets, they're highly effective. But if you get any off-target effect, that can be a bit of a problem. And we'll certainly kind of get into that. So I think like many newer paradigms, newer technologies, we start at the extremes, right? Like people are done with first line, second line, third line, and they're they're in bad shape. And then things kind of slowly march into earlier localized states. Right now, like in, in your mind, what are some of the kind of chip shots, no brainers, this patient needs radiation? So, I mean, I think we can step back and think about the standard role where it has been used and it's largely in palliation historically in kidney cancer, brain metastasis, osseous lesion causing pain. So those, I think, historically are where it has been used. But I think in my practice, it's increasingly being utilized in the oligometastatic setting where we've actually demonstrated in kidney cancer that we can, that metastatectomy has been associated with long, durable remissions and potentially even cure in a subset of patients. So using it in that context, there's been increasing data using it in the context of oligoprogressive disease to maximize time on therapy, and then using it potentially to treat the renal primary in the context of people who have contraindications for surgical resection or have other issues that would limit their ability to undergo a surgery. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, for me, if I'm training a fellow or a resident, if a comorbid person with an inoperable, I don't use that term lightly, renal mass, that's symptomatic. You know, my usual kind of sequence of events would be radiation if that doesn't work. And if say it's like bleeding, then maybe embolization if that doesn't work. We've got some, you know, sorting out to do. Does this sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I'd echo Rainer as well. And certainly palliation is, is the standard use for, for radiotherapy. So often a bleeding mass from a primary kidney cancer is a perfect uh, option or, as Rainer mentioned, brain metastasis. And I think even with the use of high-dose perfraction in this setting is actually quite satisfying too because we tended to use conventional fractionation and it tended to work for a little bit of time. But using these ablative approaches is quite helpful too. You asked about chip shot. You know, for me, I think the chip shot is that oligoprogressive patient, so a patient who's been on a, a TKI or now it's um, checkpoint and che or checkpoint plus um, TKI, and they have one spot that's just not behaving and growing a little bit. Be ashamed to switch them onto another drug therapy at that point. And the idea of that Sabre can actually deliver the treatment, ablate that, control it, and not interrupt the systemic therapy, which is a really important factor, that's a clear chip shot for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you kind of walk backwards, there's palliation, there's oligoprogressive, there's oligometastatic, you know, the CNS and, and spinal metastases, as you mentioned, I think those are standard radiation kind of agnostic of a disease site. And then we get into the, what I would consider more ex exciting parts, cytoreduction, neoadjuvant in certain clinical states like IVC, tumor thrombus, and, and of course, primary RCC. So I thought we'd maybe just kind of start out with, a, you know, these are like kind of no-brainers. If you've got patients that are bleeding, inoperable, they're sick, you got to do something to, to me that that patient should be well-served by, um, by Sabre. Well, maybe now we can take it in a more logical format from small renal masses onwards. So patient factors, you know, are there, are there settings where you're like, this could really be a good option for somebody who's maybe we're talking about small renal masses, probably merits treatment, but um, partial nephrectomy or ablation or something like that might not be 
a great option? What are some of those factors? So in this kind of situation with the small renal mass, all the treatments work really well. So, you know, even active surveillance is a good option for small renal masses to a certain point. But once you've got a biopsy proven kidney cancer that has grown or shown to be growing on surveillance, this is a good option for any of the ablative approaches or partial nephrectomy. The factors that consider for us from a SABA perspective are those patients who have comorbidities, maybe bleeding diathesis, that means percutaneous interventions might be an issue. The location, for example, if it's peripheral and sitting close to the flank, then having a percutaneous needle or even a cryoablative approach might need a general anesthetic could be quite satisfying. But having tumors that are more anterior located or near the renal pelvis, because the renal pelvis acts as a heat sink. So thermal ablation relies on thermal energy and the blood vessels draw away that thermal energy near the renal pelvis. And the other issue with thermal ablation is it can cause ureteric, ureteric strictures, which is something that we don't see with SABA. So those tumors that are more centrally located, more anterior, more complex in the small renal mass setting, I think are ideal for SABA. What it really becomes exciting is when it kind of crests over that small renal mass area. Someone's been on active surveillance, it's getting towards that four centimeter mark, three and a half centimeter mark. Well, we know that thermal ablation has potentially less efficacy and higher rates of complication. Those tumors, I think, are that niche population where patients may not be suitable for surgery because they're older and comorbid, but don't really have a good curative first treatment option. And I think in that setting, Sabre has found a real niche. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, these are all very real considerations. And, you know, once you get beyond about three centimeters, we do see a fairly consistent drop off in efficacy, whether that's cryoablation or radiofrequency ablation or IRE. Any anatomic factors that are going to be contraindications, kind of higher ones due to issues with heat sink, pelvis, if it's a right side, if it's an anterior lesion, the duodenum sitting on it or the left side of the tail of the pancreas, any of those types of things kind of play in? Yeah, I mean, you've been reading my mind, I think. So for us, from a Sabre perspective, that central pelvic hyalur tumor is not an issue. That's fine. That's good for us. From a duodenum or duodenum perspective, that is an issue. That right lower pole anterior located tumor tends to sit close to the second and third part duodenum, and that becomes problematic. So that can be an issue. That left-sided kidney tumor, also lower pole, exophytic and lateral, can be quite close to the descending colon. And if it's actually abutting the descending column, becomes an issue for us. So th these are technical considerations where you may pick one ablative approach above another. Yeah, I think it's a matter of time before somebody invents like the equivalent of like a space sword to like hydrodissect like, you know, the Dewey or the colon or God knows what off the area of interest. So clearly, you know, it's not just like a push button approach. There's some real factors to take into a place here. And Random, you know, maybe I'll ask you to kind of chime in on, you've really spearheaded and masterminded a multidisciplinary clinic for tumors across, really across the disease spectrum. Do you kind of see the role of the radiation oncologist becoming increasingly more present? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's why we generated our multi-D clinic because of the fact that, you know, it's not so clear-cut. Patients present with bilateral disease, they present with multifocal disease, they present with metastatic disease and need to have their disease kind of put in check and still have a large tumor renal mass that may be bleeding. And so actually, it's very much an integrated approach with surgery, you know, radiation oncology, and actually also interventional radiology, kind of working together to kind of optimize the best treatment strategy for any given patient. So I think kidney cancer care is becoming increasingly more multidisciplinary, especially as we have a little bit more tools in our toolkit. I mean, even in the metastatic setting, I would say there's a lot of opportunity for integration of radiation therapy. 
Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, a big part of my upbringing was at UT Southwestern, which has been a real thought leader in radiation for kidney cancer. Shankar, you've obviously done amazing work with the collaboratives and the clinical trials out of, out of your um, institution and in, Aust in the Australia region. T1A, small renal mass, contraindications of partial or surveillance or ablation. Can this be done? Do they need to be on a trial or a registry or good to go? I think it's good to go. The The NCCN have got some recommendations around this. The, actually, there's a few guidelines that have Sabre as an option. The one that's curiously missing at the moment or conspicuously missing is the EAU guideline. So hopefully that will be updated too. But at the moment, we've had nine and coming up to 10 clinical trials, prospective clinical trials in the context of Sabre for primary kidney cancer. And if you compare that to thermal ablation, there's zero. So I think there's enough evidence there to, to warrant treatment. Okay. So we've talked about some benefits, some kind of niche scenarios, slightly over three centimeters, dual antiplatelets that they can't come off of. And these are, these are fairly, as we all, I think, recognize kind of small indications. So let's say we got a patient or somebody that does have them or for whatever reason has a contraindication. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what that counseling looks like, including the um, risks associated with, with radiation? So for primary kidney cancer, generally speaking, the efficacy rates are quite high. If we're talking about T1A um, and T1B, it's around about that 95% uh, local efficacy rate in the long term. The risks are related to things like chest wall pain. That's quite up to 10% of patients will get some chest wall pain due to rib or neuromusculature which in, in that area, so flank pain. Some patients will also get risks of bowel toxicity, so that can include stricture or high, uh, in that stricture setting, it's about the 5% mark. For nausea and vomiting, it can be up to the 10% mark. And fatigue, everyone gets tired after saber to the kidney. So this is the kind of common side effects. Renal function is another thing that we keep an eye on. And it's important to keep a context of their baseline renal function. Often patients who are, that I see in my practice have pre-existing chronic kidney disease those patients with the CKD class 3, the 30 to 45 mils, that moderately severe kidney cast, that's the one that we need to keep an eye on. The risk of dialysis overall is very low. It's about that 1% mark. But those patients with that CKD 3B group, 30 to 45 mark, we have to keep an eye on. Those with lower than an EGFR of 30 mils per minute, we have to be really careful and engage a nephrologist really early on the, in the piece because any intervention, whether that's surgery, thermal ablation or SABA, will have a risk of post-treatment dialysis in that group. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, it's not a free ride, right? There's no free rides. It doesn't get that good. But I think a, a balanced discussion again, and you, you mentioned um, kidney disease. Raina, you've been involved in some clinical trials looking at neoadjuvant TKIs, for instance, in people with absolute relative contraindications. Maybe, you know, bilateral tumors, solitary kidneys. Can you talk a little bit about in your mind how this kind of fits into that bucket? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that the neoadjuvant paradigm has actually been really kicking off across solid tumor malignancies in general. We've seen very provocative data in the rectal cancer space. We've seen provocative data in melanoma and actually in the context of a large SWOG study where the same therapy was given neoadjuvant and adjuvant the administration of that therapy in the neoadjuvant setting resulted in improved outcomes versus the adjuvant setting. So I think that it's very provocative because I think it has the opportunity to downstage, potentially facilitate surgical resection. Additionally, you have a direct in vivo assessment of tumor response. And, you know, where I see the neoadjuvant paradigm kind of kicking off is potentially in those 
bulky, large renal masses that may not necessarily be operable or have a high risk from an operative standpoint, and you want to induce as much cytoreduction reduction as possible. And now our systemic therapies have gotten so good that response rates can be quite high with IO-VEGF combinations. I think it's interesting to think about strategies to integrate radiation in this approach. I know the UT Southwestern team has done a great deal of work on stabilizing IVC thrombus with neoadjuvant SBRT. And I think there's potentially opportunity for integration even with systemic therapy in the neoadjuvant setting. But I think at the present time, it's all largely experimental. Or if you have individuals that really have contraindications for standard treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think once upon a time, and you know, I was happy to enroll patients on a neoadjuvant saber study to the IVC thrombus with the idea being that you're kind of sterilizing the thrombus and not having tumor shed during the operation. We've all heard about the upscopal effect. And I think there is more and more data coming out. I'm not a lung cancer oncologist, but some pretty cool data on radiating a lung metastasis with it without or a lung primary, excuse me, with or without saber. And, and you really see like a pretty remarkable separation of the curve. So yeah, I think for margins, which is maybe not what we always think about for kidney cancer, but for that effect. And, you know, I'm sure if Rakeeb had designed the study again today, it would have been an IO plus TKI plus saber in the, in the thrombus patients. But I appreciate that, you know, this is really going to start becoming likely multimodal as, as the data continues to grow. And absolutely, I kind of want to, you know, pick your brain a little bit more on, so we, T1As, and you mentioned T1Bs kind of off the cuff, Shankar, you, I think, executed a clinical trial or a registry showing that local control still kind of in that 90 plus range complication profile about what you described. And I think for these solitary and bilateral, in my mind, if they're not surgical candidates, it could be a, could really fill an unmet need. So you've done your radiation. What does this look like in terms of measuring success? contrast enhancement, biopsies. Talk a little bit about what your protocols look like, if you don't mind. This is a challenging space. So if we're talking about the primary setting, it's a little bit more challenging than the metastatic setting. Metastatic, we tend to use resist criteria and that instability is a useful measure. Contrast enhancement's not useful for the primary kidney. We often actually, there's a nice study that's been done by Sunnerdale that showed initially contrast enhancement actually increases post-SPRT, which kind of makes sense. You know, we, we're causing destruction of the neovasculature so the tumors become better perfused in the short term. And then the tumors themselves, they don't tend to shrink so quickly. It's more that the internal design gets rearranged. So they become centrally necrotic, become wasted, but you still see this kind of carcass around where the tumor was irradiated. And this can persist for a very long time. So we often see ongoing shrinkage of the tumor and responses that occur many, many years down the track. So five, six years down the track, they're still shrinking. So the measure of success from my perspective, is really going to be about, A, no progression in the tumor that's, that we irradiated. That's that's clear. And secondly, when we're talking about these higher-risk patients, the T1Bs beyond, if we're, control, if we're having cancer-specific survival and prevention of distant metastatic uh, disease because the T1Bs and above, we're expecting about 10% of these patients should have distance recurrence. If we can reduce that, then I think we're having a, an area of success. It's really interesting because I think this is a space where a lot of the novel blood-based assays kind of detect MRD can be super ripe, you know, especially in the localized setting where if you have a renal mass that's been radiated and it's hard to really assess, you're essentially looking for lack of progression, if you will, and potentially some regression, but lack of progression where an MRD assay, blood-based or urine, particularly even a urine-based assay in the context of somebody having a renal mass that's being radiated could potentially be something worthwhile exploring in the future. 
And you, you raised the point, Adita, about the use of a biopsy. That's one thing I don't recommend. There's been several studies that have been conducted, including the UT Southwestern group that's recently published on this, but also Cleveland and other groups. We know that renal cell carcinoma is going to take a while to shrink. If you biopsy it, you will see tumor architecture. Whether or not it's viable is a completely different thing. There have been studies that have shown that if you do biopsy up to one year post-treatment, it doesn't correlate with local control. We should know that already from prostate cancer when we do brachytherapy and, and uh, even SBRT, that you can see positive, so to speak, in quotation marks, cancer cells in the post-treatment biopsies, but they don't relate to PSA. And we don't necessarily have a marker like PSA in the context of kidney cancer. So to echo Rayner's point, it might be really interesting to see some of these blood-based circulating free DNA type tests to be able to estimate what's happening down the track. But at the moment, we know that these uh, tumors respond well and they don't progress and they have long-term control rates now up to five years that have been reported. And I think that's the more reassuring thing from a patient point of view. Yeah, I, I can absolutely appreciate that. And I mean, I think some of the early series, in my understanding, it was done well, if you will. You radiate it, then you cut it out, then you kind of assess thing, and then you radiate it and you biopsy it, you know, now that you've at least got some sense of what's going on kind of from a histopath level. And now we see these ghost cell, these carcasses, these these cells that may just persist for a while. And, and, and that could potentially do some consternation for the patient if there's no clinical evidence of progression. So it really seems like local control rates are getting quite good. The toxicity profile is favorable. T1B versus T2 is, is kind of a size phenomenon. I don't really anticipate any major kind of differences in outcomes or complication profile. Is that reasonable? Yeah, we have pretty good data up to about 10 centimeters in size. Beyond that, there's limited data, but I think we're probably gonna to touch on the metastatic setting these tumors are bigger. So yeah, we can uh, certainly radiate higher, but the, the risk reward profile has to be taken into account. Okay. So maybe just kind of marching on to now we're like T3 land, locally advanced, local regional disease. And my kind of review of the literature as I was preparing for this, that may be an area, you know, outside of the tumor thrombus, for instance, where there's a bit less data. Did I just miss something or is that actually true? No, that is true. I think even the, the tumor thrombus area is very interesting, but it, and it's still limited data in that context. So if we're talking large tumors. I think the data is limited for sure. Raina, what do you think? I mean, ideal kind of study. You're like an amazing clinical trialist, T3 tumors. What does that look like for you? It's very hard to randomize somebody between radiation and surgery, especially where there is a long standard standard of care around that approach. And so I think I don't envision that a trial like that would potentially be done unless somebody had sort of a contraindication for surgery. But I think there's been more studies that have been done in the small renal mass space, largely because there's so many different options that those patients have, and there isn't necessarily a, a clearly defined standard of care, quite honestly. But I think patients that have a T3 tumor, I think it's uh, harder to to think of, you know, conducting a randomized study, potentially comparing the two. You could conceivably think about studies that are prospective, but patient preference, like a patient may elect prospectively to do one thing and elect to do something else. And then you follow them and integrate quality of life and, you know, think about a non-inferiority approach, though that kind of study would require a ton of resources and a ton of patients to conduct, especially if you wanted to look at non-inferiority. And I think what sometimes makes things challenging in the context of the way that we do trials, for better or for worse, 
these sorts of trials that integrate surgical interventions or integrate radiation interventions that don't necessarily integrate a drug of some kind become very uh, hard to fund and put on and actually do. So I think those are the thoughts around the localized setting for just taking the T3 tumors. I think if you were taking the inoperables, that's a different scenario. Yeah. I mean, I think your earlier comment on, you know, bonafide MRD tests is is clearly massive to the whole paradigm. I mean, I'll just throw it out there. I don't think all T3s are created the same. Nodal disease, high thrombi, they kind of get my attention in a much more serious way than a little bit of sinus fat invasion or perihilar fat invasion. And in those like highest of the high risk, I think, you know, multimodal therapy where, I don't know, maybe you can envision that a tumor gets radiated, you get a run-in of a checkpoint inhibitor, have a nice MRD response, and then get on to surgery and up. Shankar, what's going on? Yeah, so funny you say that. We're running a clinical trial at the moment at Peter Mac, which is relatively small, but it's a neoadjuvant, it's called NAPSTA, so neoadjuvant pembrolizumab and stereotactic radiotherapy. So it is a study for these high-risk intact kidney cancers. And everyone gets Sabre, half the patients get three cycles of pembrolizumab, and everyone gets surgery. So the idea is to have a look and see whether there's a, a rationale to build this into a larger phase two, phase three clinical trial. That's fantastic. That's super exciting. And, and what a throwback to um, once upon a time where music was challenging to acquire. Well, great. Congratulations to getting that off, off the ground and running. Fantastic. So T3 seems like it's a bit more of a black box. It's a t- you got a standard surgery. We've got surgery plus radiation, which is exciting. But the field has changed even since those trials were designed, I think, that I never want to be like, oh my gosh, what were you thinking? Because it was light years ahead at that time. But very exciting because those 30 to 50% recurrence rates are non-trivial and people die of kidney cancer. So then, you know, we get into metastatic and you know, again, like over the course of my career, it used to be large renal mass and a boatload of Mets, unless they're about to keel over, you still did surgery Then Carmina and it shifted completely the other way. And then it's like, well, Carmina asterisk, asterisk, and you can still operate in a variety of situations in the context of a multidisciplinary group. I mean, obviously it sounds like radiation could really fill a nice role in here. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how you kind of see it and what the data shows? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great opportunity for integration of radiation therapy. And I think doing trials where we can actually demonstrate that we potentially can improve outcomes for patients. I think Carmina has actually created a window of opportunity to investigate alternate modalities for targeting the renal primary and thinking about whether that has a role in improving outcomes for patients with advanced disease. And I think the robustness of the IO strategies have also kind of generated an opportunity. There's been a series of now clinical studies the cytostrike trial has just completed accrual. This is a study that was taking patients with IMDC, intermediate and porous disease, that had an intact primary, receiving nevo-ipi, and then randomizing them to receive SBRT to the renal primary with a primary endpoint of RPFS. The SAMURAI trial, which is recently launched by NRG, is a very similarly designed study, but instead of just looking at nevo-ipi, is looking at all IO combinations. So anybody receiving standard of care IO combination therapy that has an intact primary with metastatic disease would be eligible. And there's a two-to-one randomization in that trial, and that trial is actually histology agnostic if you think about radiation and the way that it works. So I think that it's uh, exciting to see this, these additional trials complement the surgical trials probe, which is looking at the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy in the context of metastatic RCC with an intact primary. So I think we're going to have to see how how these data evolve and shift practice. Absolutely. Shankar, anything to add on top of that? I think it's a fairly comprehensive overview. There is some 
potential advantage for radiation treatment in the, in the cytoreductive setting that I, I think it's worth highlighting. The most important thing is that it doesn't interrupt the systemic therapy, which is a key aspect. There's no surgical downtime. The radiation can be delivered in, intercurrently with checkpoint blockade inhibitors. So there's a really good rationale for that type of approach. And I, I probably want to give another plug for uh, Rayner and Bill Hall's study, Samurai, the NRGGU12. This is a really important study to conduct. And, and you know, again, it's a randomized trial looking at um, immunotherapy with without TKI and looking at cytoreductive radiation to the primary. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited when we get to the future horizon, things that are coming through the pipelines, game-changing trials. You've mentioned a few of them already, and it's really wonderful the work that you all are continuing to champion. So we've talked about, you know, de novo metastases and, of course, in the prostate cancer world, our systemic therapies really do have a a major impact on quality of life. Can you talk a little bit about the role of radiation to delay systemic therapy in patients with oligometastases? Maybe just what are we kind of talking about when we mention oligometastases and, you know, what that data kind of looks like? This is also a space that's ripe for investigation and, and kudos to Rakib and the UT Southwestern team and ECOG for launching SOAR. This is a study that's about to activate sometime over the summer that's actually looking at doing just that. I mean, it's very difficult to think about a SBRT study for people with low volume oligometastatic disease where you're administering SBRT to delay time for radiographic progression and allowing for repeated courses of SBRT to be administered to a patient population that you know by definition is going to live a long time because they've got low volume disease. And so defining what are the right endpoints in the context of a trial like this, defining obviously overall survival is the most important thing, but is that is that even a feasible endpoint in the context of somebody with favorable risk, low volume metastatic disease? So, And then also thinking about it's difficult to randomize patients to, well, I see a couple of spots and I'm going to randomize you to radiating them versus not or radiating them versus putting you on systemic therapy. So, But kudos to ECOG. I think this SOAR is going to be a critically important study that's going to answer a lot of open-ended questions about the role of FBRT for oligometastatic disease in RCC. That SOAR study is, is excellent. It's going to be something that's really exciting to watch. Just in without the context of a clinical trial and the background in, in routine practice, Often those patients with low-volume oligometastatic RCC can be alive for a very long time and, and accumulating toxicities of, of systemic therapy can be a real issue. So being on TKI for a long time, even financial toxicity if we're talking about immunotherapy for a long time. So delaying the start of the systemic therapy ride is very useful as an approach. And rarely some of these patients, we sometimes even use the C word for cure uh, if they have very low-volume disease. We may even have a long-term remission with treatments of one side of disease, for example. Yeah, I mean, it, I can imagine like somebody comes in with a solitary pancreatic met that popped up five or six years after their nephrectomy. And we know that those typically behave a little bit better than other sites, for instance. And now we can maybe go from monitoring that patient to radiating them and being done with it, for instance. And I think it, it's going to be incredibly interesting as our MRD assays continue to improve. I mean, surely it's a it's a matter of time before we have like a next generation kind of PSMA equivalent in kidney cancer that's also going to, uh, I imagine, be disruptive. But it is uh, it is exciting. And I think these are going to be the balanced discussions. You know, the trials, as Rana mentioned, might be challenging to execute, but here's the potential pros. You delay systemic therapy for some bit of time and, you know, maybe that time is indefinite. 
Oh, sorry to interrupt you. I was like so excited when you said the opportunity for pet imaging. I mean, it's already happening. You know, Shankar has done a fair bit of work on actually PSMA pet imaging and RCC, given that these tumors tend to express PSA in their their endothelia. And then also we saw data that were presented at AUA for the first time and and GUASCO of CI9 pet imaging to help delineate out clear cell RCC tumors. So where I see the role for PET is absolutely in the post-nephrectomy setting, surveilling patients for disease recurrence, and even in the context of monitoring, which is going to absolutely open up the door for more metastasis-directed therapy and RCC. Totally. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, immunopet and some of these other novel ligands that could help predict response to therapy are very, very cool and, and maybe in their infancy. So I think working our way through now, let's just say that you're on systemic therapy. You know, we've all, I think, are familiar with that beautiful tumor heterogeneity kidney cancer paper that was in the New England Journal of Medicine once upon a time. And some of these, as, you, as I think you mentioned, say we're kind of misbehave or bad actors, the rest of the stuff's responding. You got a couple of spots popping up. Is that also a pretty low hanging fruit for radiation? Yeah, I think that's a straightforward chip shot, as you said. So straightforward use of uh, Sabre to try to keep a patient on their otherwise effective systemic therapy. All right. So I think we're, you know, getting to that part of the disease state. We've had oligoprogression. Now we're in metastases, symptomatic metastases, brain, spinal, palliative type of scenarios. And and it seems like we're we're coming full circle. So definitely appreciate the kind of thoughtful approach and practical data regarding, you know, the various disease states. What gets you excited? You know, what's uh, what's coming through the through the door in the next five, 10 years that's really going to bring radiation to the forefront across disease states? What really makes you makes you tick? Uh, I, I jumped on it already because I was getting so excited. I think pet better diagnostic, better diagnostics to be able to t- t- detect oligometastatic disease, I think is going to be really exciting. Thinking about additional opportunities to leverage the immune system in provocative ways that integrate with other modalities. I mean, we didn't really touch on it. We're largely focusing on radiation and we're talking about radiation delivery with photons, but there's a whole field of radioligand therapy as well. And there are radioligands that are being developed for RCC. Specifically, there's a CA9 targeting radioligand. You know, we're all familiar with the gerontuximab data from eons ago, which is a monoclonal antibody against CA9. Now we've taken that monoclonal antibody and tagged lutetium-177 to it and made it a targeted radioligand therapy. And there are currently studies that are testing the efficacy of this agent. So I think there's also studies, a study that we have currently ongoing also through the Alliance looking at radium-223 for patients with bone metastases. That's an alpha-emitting naked radioparticle. And so um, there's plenty of opportunities, I think, to think about even additional therapeutic strategies. From my perspective, um, I really like the idea of the cytoreductive space. So, you know, again, the samurai study is a really important study that we're going to hopefully find out where radiation fits in the cytoreductive space and also just integration with systemic therapy even earlier. So the neoadjuvant space, I think, is super interesting. I'd like to see whether we can combine checkpoint blockade in those patients who are clearly inoperable but have larger renal masses that could be treated with SABRE with or without the immunotherapy, and also looking at the neoadjuvant space, the role of radiation leading up to surgery, which we're doing in lots of different other cancers. So it'd be interesting to explore this in the kidney space. Yeah, I appreciate all of that. And I feel like I'm getting old and reflexive, but I remember when I started out, it was kind of like everybody with muscle invasive bladder cancer, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, cystectomy, that was it. And then like 
we started kind of as I think a urologic oncology community accepting understanding that that's one of a variety of treatments, including, of course, chemo radiation. You know, I can envision a day where newly diagnosed kidney cancer patients are coming in and they're having a, a visit with a medical oncologist, an interventional radiologist, a radiation oncologist. And for all of these, there's going to be trade-offs and there's going to be patient perspectives and hopes and desires and unique considerations. But as Raina mentioned, you know, we, we take what the patient's interested in and synthesize that into the decision-making as opposed to this paternalistic, here's what you must do. And ultimately having more tools in our tool belt to me seems, seems like a win for, for the patients. Oh, that's great. I, I think to comment on the neoadjuvant, I think it's super exciting because I think when you've got a large 10 centimeter mass, I think sometimes people struggle with saying, well, can you ever achieve minimal residual disease or a pathologic complete response. And those have largely been metrics in the context of other tumors like breast cancer, bladder cancer that have been associated with long-term outcomes, but conceivably an approach where you integrate radiation and potent systemic therapy in the neoadjuvant context and then move on to surgery. I bet you that you would see higher path CR rates or defining what minimal residual disease is for RCC could definitely be something on the horizon that we're, that is uh, very provocative and worth exploring. Well, and it's, it's it's nice, right? Because the functional impact is, is it's not like radiating the prostate or the bladder where there can be a whole slew of functional downsides. You know, you don't really see issues or problems with wound healing. I mean, my experience of post-radiated kidney cancer surgery, there's it's almost um, imperceptible, any type of dysplastic response. So yeah, I think the future is bright and, um, you know, a lot of uh, exciting new disruptive paradigms to be coming through. And, you know, thanks for sharing your insight and your your hard work and, and moving the needle. Really appreciate it, uh, Raina and Shankar. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.